Welcome to this episode of the Revolution and Ideology Podcast. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Today we're going to be discussing a concept known as narcotizing dysfunction, which is just a fancy way of talking about the ways in which media impact uh, have an effect on the way that we engage socially and politically. Um, this is one of the things, Jared and I love this term and this concept, but it doesn't have a lot of currency out there like in the public sphere. Not too many people talk about it, and I really don't know why. Um, I wrote a shitty article about it, I don't even know, a couple of years <laughs> ago at this point, and published it on oh, no, Medium. It wasn't, it wasn't shitty. <laughs> and I published it online on Medium, and that article is now the second Google result, uh, second to Wikipedia, if you Google this topic, and it's been viewed almost 5,000 times. So I don't know why there's not more work using this term, perhaps because it was first coined so long ago that it's kind of lost its impact and been overtaken by other terms specifically or something. I don't know. But anyways, Jared and I both love the term, so we wanted to do an episode uh, exploring this topic. Uh, do you have anything to add before we jump in? Uh, no, we uh, narcotizing dysfunction before Nick describes it, uh, as he is our sociologist expert on the topic. Um, but before uh, he goes into that, I need all the listeners to know you suffer from this. You are diagnosed. I'm diagnosing you. I'm diagnosing myself as well. And we all suffer from this. It's a disease you didn't know you had. Yeah, for sure. Jared and I uh, definitely are not immune to this either. We absolutely suffer from this. I would say probably me more than Jared because I spend way more time online. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, we both suffer for this from this for sure. So the concept of narcotizing dysfunction uh, of the media is first described by two sociologists in an article titled uh, Mass Communication, Popular Taste, and Organized Social Action. Uh, the sociologists are Paul Lazarsfeld and Robert Merton. Uh, if you're into sociology, Robert K. Merton is a super famous uh, functionalist from back in the day. This article was first published in 1948. So we have to take a second just to situate ourselves to understand the media landscape, I think, when they're writing this article. So in 1948, right, radio, newspaper, and television is just coming about, basically. Uh, it's just now becoming popular in people's homes in the 40s. I guess I don't even argue that it's becoming popular. It's No, newspapers obviously had been a thing yeah. for going way back in time. And then radio had really taken off kind of at the, the turn of the 20th. And now TV in like the post-World War II era is yeah. becoming like now it'll be at least one in every family home with the same, you know, three three channels. So, yeah, like, I mean, it's it's kind of in this in-between era between radio and television where radio is the main medium and television is slowly sliding in just like maybe in a later era where it would be like TV was the main medium and then the internet kind of slowly slides in and, and seizes power, quote-unquote, power to influence people. Yeah, so they're just before, I guess, the explosion of television, which is even more astonishing that they were this insightful into the role of mass media when they're basically functioning in the days of uh, newspaper and radio, uh, if they could see uh, social media nowadays, I think that uh, their heads would explode. And film, too, like now that I think about it, because before yeah. you would go see a movie, they would have the newsreels instead of just like the previews, and it would be the newsreels. And that was a way to stream, again, highly, highly structured information, like highly massaged and manipulated information into a captive audience in that case, because you're there to see a specific movie, and these newsreels are, are, are giving a very, very specific story before the film starts to the audience. And like I said, they're kind of captive there because they're, they're there to see something else. Yeah, good point. Um, 
Okay, so in this article, which we'll link to in the show notes, they discuss three functions of mass media. We're going to skip the first two because we're only focused on the third, which is narcotizing dysfunction. So I'm going to read a quote from this article where they describe this concept uh, in depth. So they say, A third social consequence of the mass media has gone largely unnoticed. At least it has received little explicit comment and apparently has not been systematically put to use for furthering planned objectives. This may be called the narcotizing dysfunction of the mass media. It is termed dysfunctional rather than functional on the assumption that it is not in the interest of the modern complex society to have large masses of the population politically apathetic and inert. How does this unplanned mechanism operate? They say, Scattered studies have shown that an increasing proportion of the time of Americans is devoted to the products of the mass media. The outpourings of the media presumably enable the 20th century American to, quote, keep abreast of the world, unquote. Yet it is suggested this vast supply of communications may elicit only a superficial concern with the problems of society, and this superficiality often cloaks mass apathy. Exposure to this flood of information may serve to narcotize rather than to energize the average reader or listener. As an increasing meat of time is devoted to reading and listening, a decreasing share is available for organized action. The individual reads accounts of issues and problems and may even discuss alternative lines of action, but this rather intellectualized, rather remote connection with organized social action is not activated. The interested and informed citizen can congratulate himself on his lofty state of interest and information and neglect to see that he has abstained from decision and action. In short, he takes his secondary contact with the world of political reality, his reading and listening and thinking, as vicarious performance. He comes to mistake knowing about problems of the day for doing something about them. He is social, uh, his social conscience remains spotlessly clean. He is concerned, he is informed, and he has all sorts of ideas as to what should be done, but after he has gotten through his dinner, and after he has listened to his favorite radio programs, and after he has read his second newspaper of the day, it is really time for bed. In this particular respect, mass communications may be included among the most respectable and efficient of social narcotics. They may be so fully effective as to keep the addict from recognizing his own malady. Whew! There's a lot to break down there. Um... First, before we dig into like the the modern era, which is super, I mean that that's even worse. Obviously, we're now it's just constant streaming into our brains of of all of this data and information. Even for the era, uh, as Nick said, uh, or I'm going to paraphrase Nick, they were so far ahead of their time, understanding that again these what we would consider now limited channels of information. Uh, a handful of TVs and only three stations and maybe some newsreels before you go to the cinema and uh, some newspapers uh, and the radio. Like that was it. And that's where you got your information. And again, the information was highly limited. Even with, during that era, they saw the writing on the wall that control over, again, the stories and the singular path of these stories is actually serving a narcotizing some sort of like drug. We become addicted to it. It's 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 something that we need to to consume to feel good and like any drug the more you consume the more you grow tolerant the more you need whether that drug is sugar or nicotine or or methamphetamines whatever it is um 
you need more of that. The second part of this is this consumption part of it actually makes us dysfunctional, not necessarily because it's a drug, but because the mere consumption of this information and feeling like we are more worldly or empathetic or understanding what is going on, even in our own communities, merely knowing now takes the place of actually doing. So this consumption of actually doing or of actually knowing these things, it makes us all kind of, in a modern term, we would say like clicktivists. Like it's cool that I know what's going on in Hong Kong right now or in the Turkish-Kurdish uh, situation or what's going on in D.C. with the impeachment process. I'm kind of dating this episode, unfortunately, a little bit by using these current examples right the second, but I apologize for that. But at any, any rate, it doesn't get – I'm not actually doing anything. I am merely – one of the things that we critique a lot of activists for is they always get mired in the awareness building part of like their, their social process and narcotizing dysfunction actually serves and corroborates the process of awareness building without ever actually getting to action. Nick? Yeah. So we're actually going to – yeah, we'll get to there that in a second. The modern role of like narcotizing dysfunction and how it functions with like social media and much different mass media. Um, but like Jared said, uh, Lazarsfeld and Merton see the writing on the wall and they're basically just dealing with radio, uh, and newspapers at this point. And so the fact that they were so insightful about this level of information, I mean, you can imagine how exponentially worse narcotizing dysfunction is now that we have uh, mass media. And like Jared said, the, their concept is basically that we now are so informed that we have replaced this knowledge, this information with action itself. So, uh, we basically don't. I'm gonna, in fact, I'm going to read their quote, this sentence, because I love this sentence. Um, he st they say, quote, After he has gotten through his dinner, after he has listened to his favorite radio programs, and after he has read his second paper of the day, it is really time for bed. That basically, we feel good about ourselves, and that's the narcotizing dysfunction part of it. That's the narcotizing part. We feel good about ourselves because we're so informed and we spent so much time gathering this information that we don't have any time to do anything else. And we feel like we've done something because we merely spent time digesting information, which is, uh, is it, I mean, it's ridiculous. I don't know what else to call it. Uh, so let's fast forward a little bit. Uh, I'm going to read some excerpts from another article that picks up this concept a little bit later on. So this article is from 1973. It comes from a research psychologist by the name of G.D. Weeb, who was a lecturer at the uh, City College of New York. His article is titled Mass Media and Man's Relationship to His Environment. Um, so he takes the narcotizing dysfunction concept and uh, places it in the future a little bit, at least the future compared to 1948. So this is in 1973. So now we're in full-blown television uh, era. The reason I like his article is because he has another term that I love, and the term he calls this well-informed futility. And so I'm going to read an excerpt from him that will explain this. He says, If the media inform the individual, they simultaneously tend to immobilize him. The arena in which reported events unfold is too vast for his poor powers. But what of the small arena in which his influence would be felt? His feeling of futility vis-a-vis -vis mediated events tends to also debilitate his feelings of responsibility and competence in local affairs. The increasing centralization of politics and economic arrangements tends to deplete the autonomy of primary groups and so further depress the individual's feelings of competence in his own scene. Local organizations can be rolled under by support of a higher echelon for a competing interest. While children clean up a square block, a corporation or a municipality pollutes a square mile. Where does an individual take hold in becoming process? 
How does he get leverage in the making of decisions? We strive for the status associated with being well-informed only to feel the anguish of making no difference. And if the anguish hurts, there is the compensating comfort of avoiding the fracas of interacting in the real world. This is the syndrome of well-informed futility. It stands on three legs, a high level of knowledge drawn from all media, exclusion from the becoming of important events, and the weakening of the individual's confidence in his own ability to cope with his environment. What are your thoughts on that one? <clears throat> I think it's, it, it hits like right on the money. Again, it doesn't matter if we're talking about the 40s, the 70s, or, or currently. Each, each era, each generation has had to deal with more, basically, information being streamed into their brain. Um, and, and each generation has become less socially and politically active. Which is kind of funny. I, 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 I know there's listeners out there that are, you know, whatever, of a certain generation. doesn't matter which one. And they always think, oh, man, we're so politically active. But, again, this is – it's about awareness building. It's not actual action. And that's what makes it kind of different because what we do is we have – and, again, he says it in different terms. We're replacing the actual doing of things with the merely of the knowing things. The other part that I think is intriguing, especially as we get into the 70s and then when we apply this to the current day, is that, again, it's a flood of so much information now that that in and of itself, especially on a global level, can feel overwhelming to where we don't even want to interact on local levels. So, yes, when I use those more modern examples of the Hong Kong situation or the Turkey and the Kurdish situation or the the impeachment process, that's all well and good, and that's nice information to have. But those things, like, again, that are kind of outside our immediate sphere of influence can also act to debilitate us. Again, it makes it almost seem like the issues of our day are so overwhelming now that we're exhausted. We're exhausted. What do you think? And that's what I like about his theory. He sort of adds this futility aspect to the narcotizing dysfunction where it's not just that we have a lot of information and so we substitute that for action. He says there's another step actually that we have so much information that we basically don't even know what to do. We're so disconnected from the real world because we're consuming all of this media and it's not real life. Like it's literally just messages into our brains that we don't even know how to make change anymore. We feel like anything we do will just be a futile effort to make real change. And then we turn around and use the same mediums to seek to make that same kind of change because we don't know how else to reach a quote-unquote audience of like-minded folks because this is what they also consume. So it's almost like this vicious cycle that's kind of regurgitating itself. Nick and I like to refer – like or not refer – like discuss the idea of why is there this like rising popularity or resurrection. It's, it's always been a thing in history, but it's becoming more and more popular again in the United States of apocalyptic narratives and literature and gaming and film – whether we're talking about zombies or aliens or or nuclear fallout or what have you, like this is one of the most popular genres. Like the end of the world is a popular thing for us to digest. And I would argue it, it's tied to this narcotizing dysfunction thing. We don't know how to cope with what is going on in the world. So the only way we can cope is by wiping the slate clean. We also don't know how to wipe the slate clean anymore. So we consume it through, of course, our mass media products. We're, we're actually using those products to sate our minds. Thus, we go back into that kind of feudal mindset and the cycle continues. Yeah, one of my favorite quotes, which is super popular now by Frederick Jameson, is it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. That comes from Jameson and then got popularized by Zizek. Um, and, and that's a perfect argument for why is all of this like dystopic fiction so popular? Because we don't know what a future looks like 
it's easier for us to imagine just destruction of our current system than it is to imagine what some kind of like utopic future would even be what it would even look like which speaks to the like again the entire conditioning process we've been through right we're such inside the box thinkers even like the most out there it's really just a spectrum we're all inside the box we cannot envision what uh the scientist kuhn said is the next paradigm shift socially or politically we can't even envision it our brains are so small we're so conditioned to be inside Plato's cave, and I get that it might sound offensive, but yeah, myself included, we are dumb as hell. We are like, again, and it's not necessarily all our fault, it is this, again, very narrow socialization process. Are Is there a spectrum within the socialization process? Are some people a little bit more enlightened than others? Yes, but it's still inside the box thinking, and this narcotizing dysfunction only serves to preserve that, to even perpetuate it. Um, again, because we... Every new thought we have must go through this certain like channel of vehicles, whether that is now an Instagram or whether it's the radio. Again, those are two very what we think like different parts of how we transmit information, but they're really not. They're still the same. They're just different. They're just different tools now because we've advanced technology, but that technology is merely under the dominant discourse of transmitting information in a certain way yeah, I with think a certain like goal. In a postmodern and post-structuralist society – where cynicism, I would argue, rules the day. Like, what's Zizek's quote? It's something like, you know, Marxist said, Marx said they know not what they do, but Zizek says, like, they know what they do and they continue doing it, right? Like, we now know. We know all the inequalities of society. Like, I would argue we're not even in the cave anymore. We know the cave exists. We literally just are incapable of thinking beyond, like, that the cave exists. Well, and here's the thing. I think, yeah, maybe people are aware they exist within the cave. And a lot of people we already know, we talk about this in classes and stuff, are comfortable with the cave. Like they're comfortable because they're scared of the unknown or they have some sort of vested stake in the cave or whatever it is. That's fine. Actually, I guess the better metaphor would be like they are in the cave. Someone has explained to them that they're in the cave, but they don't know what's outside the cave, nor do they want to leave the cave. Correct. Which which goes back to the original metaphor. And, And they're scared of the cave itself. Moreover, they don't know how to get outside of the cave and again, it's it's one of those things that we're, we ourselves, even as maybe being on a spectrum of knowing a little bit more, are still inside the cave to an extent. Because again, we can't even imagine a world without, well, you said without capitalism, but I would say like this, just this modern industrial notion of what society should look like. We don't even know what that looks like. So the only thing we can imagine is ending it, ending it all together, whatever that looks like. Again, maybe it's aliens, maybe it's zombies, maybe it's a nuclear fallout, maybe it's a pandemic, whatever it is. And so, again, it's actually to come full circle back to narcotizing dysfunction. This is the, the, the futility. This is the inaction. We then use the channels, the vehicles for our own, basically, shackles. We're using our own shackles to try and basically... Um, um, I don't know, to challenge the status quo of our time period. And then, again, we get stuck. We're stuck. It's almost – we become static. Okay. So now let's fast forward to another article. By the way, we're going through three articles, um, and we'll link all of them to the show notes. And I'm going to mention a book in a second. We'll link that to the show – in the show notes too. Um, Then we get into this weird, interesting dynamic of – I mean the Arab Spring, right? People point to this as a turning point of – the role of technology in revolution and social change and protest. And many people celebrate the like democratic functions of a, like Twitter as an example and how the people can use that to make social change. 
And there's a super good book written by a sociologist. Uh, she calls herself a techno sociologist because she analyzes the impacts of technology sociologically. Her name's Zainab Tufeki. Uh, she wrote a book in 2017 titled Twitter and Tear Gas, The Power and Fragility of Networked Protest. And it's actually available for free online. So we'll link to it in the show notes. Um, and it talks about Twitter and other technologies and their roles in social change. Um, Tufeki just, by the way, is super interesting. She has a TED Talk, like you can Google that. Uh, she's a professor, I think, at the University of North Carolina, and then she has a fellowship at Harvard, if I remember correctly. She also is on staff, uh, editorial staff at the New York Times, writing about technology and its social implications. Um, but anyway, the book is super, super good. Like, she was on the ground during the Arab Spring. Uh, she's Turkish. And so she has firsthand accounts of like seeing this go down and all kinds of stuff. So the book is wicked good, but it comes from the perspective of celebrating the role of technology in social change. So I want to go into an article um, because many people, many, most people believe in this perspective, I think, but they never actually critically question whether or not it's true or the like, the fact that technologies can actually hinder social change. Um, but a, an author, a professor from also Turkey, coincidentally, by the name of Sakir Esiti, he's a professor of economics uh, at uh, Ardahan University in T Turkey. He wrote an article in 2016 titled Narcotizing Effect of Social Media. And so he picks up the concept of narcotizing dysfunction from Lazarsfeld and Merton and applies it really, really uh, well and provides compelling arguments for how this applies today with uh, social media and modern technologies. And he argues in this article against what he calls the techno-optimistic approach to novel and developing technologies and their role in social change. So this term I love, this techno-optimistic approach. So these are basically the people that believe that Twitter will create a revolution as an example. Uh, and he's critiquing that. So I'm going to read some quotes from him and he'll give us, uh, uh, yeah, whatever. I'm going to read the quotes from him. He says, quote, Social media gives individuals the opportunity to express their ideas, feelings, and dissatisfactions on the cyberspace. In this case, if we apply the narcotizing dysfunction approach to social media, expressing ideas, feelings, and dissatisfactions on the cyberspace may cause the users to feel that they have done all the best they could do. More clearly, expressing feeling via sending emails, tweets, or posts could serve to self-satisfaction. Accordingly, social conscience of the individuals remains spotlessly clean, just as Lazarsfeld and Merton emphasized long ago. Since they are concerned, informed, and even they express their feelings about the issue. In this case, social media can be seen as a social narcotic, or the new opium of the modern societies. I love that last part of the sentence, and I so wish he would have gone full Marxist and called it the uh, new opium of the masses, but he uh, doesn't. He says that social media can be viewed as the new opium of the modern societies, which I think is super powerful. Um, and then I read one more quote, and we'll provide commentary on this. He says, Online activism, clicktivism, or the concept of slacktivism can also be evaluated through the narcotizing dysfunction approach. On the one hand, through internet and social media, liking, sharing, tweeting a post, an image, a video, or signing an online petition do not always cause a social or political change. Even worse than that, it may give the social media user a false sense of accomplishment and serve as a self-satisfactory tool and narcotizes the participants. On the other hand, overconsumption of the vast amount of information on these communication channels may distract the social media user's attention. Overconsumption of information by the users about a certain issue may cause only a superficial concern. 
For instance, the heavy dosage of negative news over a period would make social media users immune to the shock of such deviant action. For instance, representation of violence on television programs, news, and cinema may serve or could make people indifferent to similar actions. Therefore, social media may render its users incapable of action, causes apathy, and serves as a social narcotic. So what are your thoughts on that? He brings us full circle to the modern time, basically, applying narcotizing dysfunction to slacktivism and clicktivism and et cetera. Hashtag thoughts and prayers. <laughs> That's my thought on it. I mean, seriously, I, I don't even know that I can add to it. I, he That was pretty pretty fiery rhetoric, and, and I really enjoyed what he had to say. I, I, I don't. I don't know that I can add to it. I mean, it kind of just coincides and corroborates what we've already been talking about when we were looking at the 1940s, the 1970s, the current era. I mean, even the Arab Spring, groups like Anonymous, like that. It's it's a joke. I'll, I'll just flat out say it. It's a joke. I'm sorry. Clicktivism is a joke. Meme culture is a joke. The whole thing is like a running gag, and it's on us. It's on us that seek to make the world a, a better place, whatever that looks like for you. If you are uh, challenging uh, the powers that be regarding climate change or police brutality or racial injustice or socio or the widening socioeconomic gap or uh, issues regarding the LGBTQ plus community and gender and et cetera, like whatever it is, if you're using the internet to make those statements, to challenge, to consume information in today's society, I think you're actually doing it wrong. I, I hate to say it, but the more I think about it, the more I realize like that's the easiest thing for the powers that be to react to and to thus control. Moreover, it is also where we see some of the division regarding people that are seeking to make change really come to fruition because everybody now feels like they have this voice this Facebook or Instagram or Pinterest. I don't know why I brought up Pinterest, but whatever. <laughs> or, or, or Twitter voice. Pinterest is, is not about like voice, is it? I don't know. Maybe it is. Yes, it could be. Yeah. Get, yeah, whatever. Anyway, they all feel like they have this voice and it is catered to the facade of individualism within the social sphere but thus that makes them feel like god like special little people and thus they have a much harder time actually connecting their plight whatever their plight is to others because then it becomes like the oppression olympics like my issue whatever it is is now more important than your issue and social media is only fueling that the funny thing is we're all using the social media but because we can add a little bit of a different wallpaper and voice ourselves without any real censorship i mean that's debatable now regarding some recent events on both Facebook and even on like online gaming I've noticed but regardless like without any real censorship it gives us some sort of again self gratification that speaks to our individualism our individual greatness and the importance of our cause and our passions over those of our peers on the same social media platform which leads to further fracturing well and that's no accident right like right uh, what's the guy's name? It's like Tristan Harris, I think, that used to work at Google. I think he was like a design ethicist for Google. And he then quit because he had issues with what they were doing. And he has a TED Talk on this. I don't know what the title is, but we'll post a link to it in the show notes. And then he recently, like in June or July, testified before Congress also. And he talks about the how... It's not an accident that we end up in these echo chambers online because that's the business model. The business model is to keep us as polarized as absolutely possible so that we stay on the websites for as long as absolutely possible so that we generate revenue for these websites. And so he talks about the control that these platforms have and that like basically he doesn't go into the social change realm, but how we're powerless to use these to our own benefits. Like that's not possible based on the technologies. And just like Jared said, 
it's funny that I, Americans typically don't think of this because it's not something that's happened. But I tell my students all the time, if there's real revolution in our country, watch how fast the government turns the internet off. It will be instantaneous. And they don't believe this because they're like, well, like Quest and Comcast. And like, I'm like, you don't think the government has a kill switch? Like, are you serious? You're fooling yourself at this point. Like, like the companies are going to somehow fight the government to keep the internet going. Like, lit, I mean, I don't want to date this episode anymore, but right now, Turkey is invading the Kurdish area and the internet is turned off. And so we're like, well, the America isn't, America isn't Turkey, but watch how fast that happens if shit really went down in the United States. Well, and America's not Turkey. I actually, I would, I mean, for those of you that don't, tune into our Myth is America series. Yeah. America has all of those same, like, yes, qualities, historically speaking. I mean, well, and that yeah. specific example is interesting because the only reason Turkey was allowed yeah. or able anyway, to invade yeah, because the yeah. U.S. left, but yeah, whatever. Yeah. The other thing I want to talk about, you mentioned memes, but I think it's super funny because we in our revolution class – our students do a group project where they have to form this hypothetical social movement and they get to pick whatever topic they want and they have to create a social movement of how they would make change in this area. And literally every single group, their plan hinges, like the center of their plan for how they're going to make change is through memes. Almost every single one. And it's like, and then Jared and I have to explain to them like, guys, this is not how change is made in the world. And we have to challenge them of, can you think, give me one example, one time throughout history where memes have created social change. And there's literally not a single one. It might raise the consciousness of an issue or whatever. But like Jared said, if you're making your change online, it's not going to happen. It's not a thing. Well, yeah, they're competing with Doggo. Yeah. Memes are not going to change the world. Spoiler alert. Like, I don't know what... Or the, the weeaboo culture. Like, it's just... Uh, there's so many. Like, there's so much competition for eyes in the meme culture. Then, and again, even yeah. if we wanted to argue, like, memes changing, I'm sorry, leftists, but the right is whooping your ass of controlling online technology for their cause. Like, I'm sorry. They just are. That's a whole different conversation that we don't yeah. enter into into this episode. That could be a future episode about, like, why the the... the binary paradigm of american politics is working out the way it is um but that could be that could be an episode in and of itself uh anyway so yeah i mean i think that's one of those things that's kind of lost on people today they don't and it was you know i don't know that i phrased it well in my comment prior to the last one but like that's the idea is that we don't know how to use any other vehicle to make ourselves heard so we use the vehicle that is actually, ironically, also oppressing us. And, and, and that's like the greatest irony. And it merely perpetuates that oppression. Whether that oppression is through control over our narrative by the powers that be, corporations or the government, or whether that is control through further fracturing us by making us feel like super special little individuals, it is, and it again, it, I mean, I, I'm guilty of this, and I used to I used to post a little bit online on various forums and stuff, and I do remember like somehow this time suck of I, I get into an argument on whatever topic. It could range from anything from politics to basketball of all things, and I look down and it's been three hours of me and some other un not non-face individual somewhere else in the world arguing about something inconsequential, and there go three hours of time that I could have been doing something actually productive rather than argue but then I but at the end of it, if I won that argument, I feel like I did something, even though nothing actually was accomplished. And this is me. Like, I've done this before. I don't do it anymore, but I've done this before. Yeah, and I think it's that feeling that's important, right? right? Because like, That's the narcotizing it, exactly. part. Who's ever won a Facebook argument? The correct answer is no one. No one has ever, in the history of Facebook, won an argument. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. I don't know what else to add. Um, yeah, we're going to cut that off there. So that's the concept of narcotizing dysfunction in a nutshell and where it came from and how it can be applied to modern times um, and a little bit on clicktivism and slacktivism. And uh, I guess I do want to mention, though, I feel remiss that we can't we can't end this episode with some what is our solution to this? What do we think we do about this? I think step one for sure is stop going down the rabbit hole of social media and YouTube and et cetera, like getting uh, offline and going out into your community and you actually engaging with others. We are others. using those vehicles to advertise this very podcast. We are hypocrites. We oh, are yeah. Guilty. I open the episode with that. I fully Call agree. Out. Call us out, listeners, the hypocrites. Um, I, I, that's, the, that's the answer. It, it's actually an open-ended question. Um, and it comes back to what we talked about, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes ago in this episode was this like we too, myself and Nick may be a little bit higher on the spectrum of kind of like being aware of things, but we're still in the cave just like everybody else. What's, what is the other vehicle to actually, you know, not be part of this narcotizing dysfunction to not actually have this quote unquote disease? Um, I, I don't know that I have the answer. If I did, I probably wouldn't be on this microphone right now about to upload this to YouTube uh, and to Apple, whatever, the iTunes podcast series. Like, we, I, obviously, we're part of the process. What yeah. do we do? I don't know. Maybe leave us a comment. Yeah. Uh, if, you're, if you are uh, listening on YouTube, leave us a comment. What do we do? All right, that's it. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Revolution and Ideology podcast. You can catch us online at uh, revolutionandideology.com. We're on Twitter at Rev and Ideology. You can also subscribe to us on YouTube. Just search Revolution and Ideology Podcast. Uh, if you want to support us on Patreon, you can look for us there as well. Yeah, that's it. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Later.